When Wyoming Catholic College sophomores take Theology 201, The Mystery of the Trinity, they're typically surprised that before diving into the theology of the Trinity, they're up to their ears in philosophy. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar, Wyoming Catholic College's weekly podcast on the great books and the liberal arts. In his compendium Theologiae, St. Thomas Aquinas eventually gets to the theology of the Trinity, but he begins with 37 chapters filled with philosophical considerations about the being and nature of God. God exists. God is immovable. God is eternal. God is necessary. God is everlasting. God is simple. Such considerations come first, since without them, theology can lose the moorings it needs in the intellect and in the world as it is. Without a firm foundation in philosophy, we can begin to see God as nothing more than a very, very, very large and powerful version of ourselves, or, as the so-called process theologians had done, a God who is mutable, always learning, changing, and adapting. That is, philosophical errors invariably produce theological errors. To help us understand the place of philosophy in our theology, and in St. Thomas in particular, our guest this week on The After Dinner Scholar is the professor who teaches Theology 201, The Mystery of the Trinity, Dr. Jeremy Holmes. Dr. Holmes, to begin with, tell us about Thomas's Compendium Theologiae. Uh, why did he write it, and how can it be useful for us today? St. Thomas was at the end of his career, as it turned out. He was in the latter stages of writing his famous Summa Theologiae, when apparently his personal secretary, Brother Reginald, who had been with him throughout his time as a teacher and had always been his note-taker, his organization person, his right-hand man, Reginald approached him and uh, apparently asked him to somehow boil the big project down. This is a really big vision you're putting across. Could you somehow sum it up for me? Reginald was apparently a fairly sharp guy. When you open the compendium, you realize, wow, you need a lot of background to begin this. So it wasn't that Reginald was a simpleton, but he knew he wasn't Thomas Aquinas either. So in a way, he asked Thomas to make a summa of his own summa. And um, Thomas uh, began doing that as a labor of love. His dedication at the front front is to uh, my dear son, Reginald, but before he completed the project, he had uh, he had planned a section on faith, a section on hope, and a section on charity. He finished the section on faith, which is an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. He had just finished that when, of course, on December 6th, Feast of St. Nicholas, he went into the chapel of St. Nicholas one morning to offer Mass. Something happened in there. We don't know what, but it came out and said, after what I've seen... I can't write anymore. Everything I've written is like straw. And he stopped writing, stopped the Summa, stopped the compendium. So the the incompleteness of the compendium is itself a kind of witness to how Thomas exited uh, the academic life. And he spent the last year of his life not writing. He died about a year later. Why did Aquinas begin the compendium, this book of theology, with all this philosophy? So as we open up, the first thing we get is a demonstration that there must be an unmoved mover, and then that the unmoved mover is not itself moved, and then that the this unmoved mover has a necessary kind of being, and so on. And it, uh, I have had students tell me, gee, I thought I was in a theology class, and this feels just like philosophy class. It has to do with the nature of revelation. 
that if God is going to reveal something to us, packed into the very idea of revelation is the idea that it's received in our minds. It has to be something that unfolds inside a human understanding, which is to say God speaks to us in our words. He uses our ideas to tell us what it is he wants to say. That means that we have to get our own house in order somewhat to be ready to receive revelation. We have a very bad grasp of many of the words that we use. There's a lot of, uh, you might call it, debris and, and underbrush in the path of divine revelation. And philosophy can come clear the path. The major word that St. Thomas is worried about, the one that we, he thinks, understand very badly, is the word God. And when God wants to say, for example, I am three persons in one nature, God is three persons in one nature, if we are way off on the terms God and the term person and the term nature, revelation won't do us much good. So philosophy comes in beforehand, not to replace revelation, but to clear the path. Does it matter what kind of philosophy? It surely does in St. Thomas's mind. Uh, he is convinced that um, it's the, it's, well, it's the perennial philosophy. Um, of course, St. Thomas lived at the time when the text of Aristotle had recently been rediscovered in the West, and he writes in a very Aristotelian way. But the students I have taught from the compendium after they spend a little while reading Thomas's opening section on what God is like, then we turn to some church fathers, Gregory Nazianzen, Gregory of Nyssa, Athanasius. When they read those church fathers, I've had students say to me with a little historical misunderstanding, did Gregory Nazianzen read Thomas Aquinas? And I want to say, well, no, you're off by about a thousand years. But the insight the student is having is that even though the church fathers perhaps were coming from a more platonic slant, Thomas is coming from a more Aristotelian angle, there is a consistent perennial philosophy that has always, from the earliest days, informed Christian theology. Now, define perennial philosophy. It is a philosophy that has staying power, that um, is not a fad of a given age. It's not the achievement of a given person. It's a kind of collective accomplishment over the centuries uh, from actually from many different points of view. And it rests ultimately on the conviction that uh, we have to start from common sense, from what we know of the world, and build up from there. For example, contrasted with the project of Rene Descartes, who sequestered himself in a cabin for a while to be all alone, isolated from the world, and began inside his mind thinking, how do I know that anything exists outside of myself? For the common man, that is an insane beginning point for a project. The perennial philosophy is going to start from somewhere that the common man will recognize as sane, and then build. You know, and because it, that's what it does, it has a kind of staying power, even though, as I say, sometimes it comes in a more Aristotelian form, sometimes a more Platonic form, sometimes, you know, there's going to be a specifically Thomistic slant to it. There is nonetheless a kind of recognizable common sense philosophy that has endured over the ages. Now, what difference does it make as we understand the Trinity, that we first believe that God is immovable, eternal, necessary, everlasting, simple, and so on. How does that inform our understanding of Christian theology and the doctrine of the Trinity in particular? Our natural reaction is to understand things by imagining them. That is a very useful way to approach 
almost everything that we try to grapple with. It's a great way to work on a car engine. It's an excellent way to cut down a tree. It's a good way to build a house. It is misleading when you come to things that are not bodies, that are th when you come to things that are spirits because the imagination pictures things and what can be pictured is necessarily extended in space. It's a body. Because that this, this is our, our, our go-to comfort zone for knowing, when we first hear say that God is three persons, we imagine a kind of pie cut into three wedges or um, a, some, some kind of physical object segmented into three parts. And it's very helpful to come in and say, no, actually God is absolutely simple. He doesn't have parts. Uh, there, there's only one, one reality in him. You can't slice him into pieces. The, the, the Father is not one-third of the Trinity, and then the Son one-third of the Trinity. It's not like if you add Father and Son and Holy Spirit together, you get the whole God. Each one of them is entirely God, the God that we worship. So the imagination will immediately lead us astray. But as long as we have allowed ourselves to follow the imagination a little bit, even if we're not consciously thinking it, we're... we're almost unconsciously thinking of God in terms of parts, the, the, the Trinity sounds like maybe surprising, but not that hard. The mystery becomes truly mysterious when we realize God is utterly simple. And we are going to have to reconcile having three persons with having no parts. And at that point, every semester I teach this course uh, on God and the Trinity, when we get to the point of saying God has no parts, some student raises his or her hand and says, what about the Trinity? And that's wonderful because this very conception of God as simple, eternal, necessary, not subject to motion, the procession of the, of the, the persons of the Trinity is not, a, is not a fluid, evolving thing. That is the very way of thinking about God that the Arian controversy unfolded against. The church fathers had that conception of God. This was Arius's objection. So until you have done this basic spade work on what we can know about God from reason, you actually don't have the, the background you need to understand what was everyone excited about back in the fourth century when the Trinity was being defined. How is a lack of a solid grounding in philosophy um, having a negative impact on theology today? Theology today, well, it's sort of at two levels, right? There is, a, first off, a kind of unmooring of our ideas. We have for example, process theology, which is all about the idea that God is in motion, as opposed to the perennial notion of God as unmoved, as um, without, as St. James says, without any shadow of change in him. We have theologians who see God as suffering in his divine nature, as, as undergoing pain because of the evils happening to us or because of what happened to Christ on the cross. Again, there, coming from that perspective, you simply cannot understand the Nestorian controversy about the Incarnation. The whole starting point for the debate was that God can't suffer change. And so the Incarnation, as orthodoxly defined, becomes very difficult to talk about. It's much easier to, well, deny a few things like Nestorius did to reconcile that with God's unchangeability. So the first thing that happens when we lose the, the perennial philosophy is that our theology becomes unmoored from the starting points of all the conversations that led to the definitions of faith that we have. But the second thing that has happened is that theologians have lost sight of the fact that their philosophy is driving what they do. A great example of this is in his um, 
famous Erasmus lecture, then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, gave a diagnosis of what's the problem in biblical studies. Why is it that biblical studies has such a hard time being Catholic? What he said is at the end of the day, this, the crisis in biblical studies is not a crisis in theology or in biblical studies. It's a crisis in philosophy. And he said, get your philosophy first. And he pointed specifically to St. Thomas. And then you'll have the tools you need to get something that seems as unrelated as interpreting the Gospel of Luke right. How can our listeners brush up on the philosophical underpinnings of Catholic theology? Is the compendium a good place to begin? or The compendium is compendious, let us say. That is, my experience of it is that um, it is like beef jerky. You know, it, it has been dried and condensed, and our students even with preparation, benefit greatly from having a teacher in the room to add water and boil again and bring it back to, to, to size. For someone who does not have a teacher in the room, I would recommend for, for basic philosophy of God's starting point, there's a book that came out recently by Michael Augros called Who Designed the Designer? And he walks through the basic argument for God's existence based on motion and the basic attributes of God in a way that's very accessible. Mike Arteros is one of my teachers and he's, um, he's, he's fantastic. There are some other good resources out there. I would recommend that people who are interested in St. Thomas also look into the description of Thomas's life and work by Father Frederick Copleston, who does a wonderful job of saying this was the worldview against which Thomas's work unfolded. When I was getting started, that was very compelling for me. I've heard great things about Edward Fazer's introduction to St. Thomas Aquinas as well. I haven't read it myself, but colleagues here have recommended it highly. Beyond all that, however, I would urge people to be bold and pick up St. Thomas and read some. As funny as it sounds, if I were handing a text to a beginner, I probably wouldn't hand him the compendium, uh, precisely because of how condensed it is. It's great for our curriculum where we can do short readings and the teacher can help students get into it. I would actually uh, recommend that people pick up the old standby, the Summa Theologiae. There's a beautiful bilingual edition out from the Aquinas Institute. Uh, there, the, the exposition of each point is much fuller. Peter Kreeft also did a few condensations of Thomas's work, like his Summa of the Summa, which is in a way redundant with the compendium, but it is taking text from the Summa and arranging them. So like, these would be probably the essential points you'd want to know in Thomas's own words. And I would encourage people both to get help reading these other authors, but also to read the words of Aquinas himself. You know, strike out there. If you're a beginner, it'll feel like it's over your head, but you'll be getting a kind of irreplaceable savor of what are these people talking about, Father Cobblestone and Peter Kraft and Mike Agros and so on. What, what are they digging into? Here, here's sort of the original. Great. And I'll put links to those books on the uh, description of this podcast. Excellent. In studying Revelation and its credibility, as well as the corresponding act of faith, wrote Pope St. John Paul II in the encyclical Fides et Ratio, Fundamental theology should show how, in the light of the knowledge conferred by faith, there emerge certain truths which reason, from its own independent inquiry, already perceives. Revelation endows these truths with their fullest meaning, directing them toward the richness of the revealed mystery in which they find their ultimate purpose. Close quote. Our neighbors, by natural reason, know something about God. We are then in a position to fill out that partial understanding with the richness of the faith delivered to us through revelation. And the more we learn and understand, 
the more we become effective witnesses of God's truth. Hence, the After Dinner Scholar. Thank you for listening, and if you'd be willing, would you go to iTunes and write a review for us? For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.